We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media, business, and tech. And we're lucky today we have joining us is Marquise Francis, who is a national reporter and producer at Yahoo News. Let's jump in and get to know Marquise. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thank you for having me this evening. Absolutely. No, we're excited to have you and thanks for spending some time with us. Love to talk, you know, a little bit about you, but first tell our our uh, listeners a little bit about what you're doing for work these days. Yeah, so ordinarily as a national reporter, every day is a little bit different. I could be traveling all over the country, covering news. It, it, it really usually lends itself to being national politics just because that's the nature of it. I mean, trying to cover news that someone in Idaho, someone in Texas, and someone in New York would care about. So a lot of the more local stories we don't get to cover, but if it's something to do with gun control, politics, shootings of, you know, a large nature, that ends up what it, it is. Crazy enough, I've been to, I think, five Trump rallies to date. So I've been all from two in Minnesota to two in Texas, one in Florida. You know, I've been to March for Our Lives and whatnot. I've also sat down with folks like Stacey Abrams, Killer Mike, Charlotte Maine. So, you know, from my perspective, I'm always trying to figure out how can I combine culture and politics, particularly, you know, broken down in a way that a younger, you know, me would understand. Because I can remember back just growing up, I knew politics was important, but it just didn't quite work. It just didn't really correlate uh, for me. So now that I'm older a bit and I still don't get everything, you know, if I'm able to sit down with the Charlemagne the God and talk about music and politics and why he's interviewing all the Democratic candidates, I feel like, OK, I, I kind of get it now, you know. So, you know, whether I'm traveling or whether I'm in the office writing a story or making a video, it's just how can I get the news from me out to anyone in the world? It's a pretty cool, cool job. Um, obviously, in Corona times, it's uh, pivoted a bit. And now things are more virtual. So instead of traveling, I'm trying to reach out to people on email, on Twitter, literally anywhere. I'm stalking people on Facebook, on their Instagrams, getting their emails, PR contacts, Skyping with them, recording that. I have this cool, it's called a Rev, where I get like the AI transcript. So I'm able mm. to put, put together a script from my editor to put that together while he's editing. Then I'm writing a story. And it's crazy because I feel like I put my heart into like all these stories. And then the next day the boss like, okay, what's next? So it's wild. It never ends. But I do feel a responsibility, right? You know, coronavirus is disproportionately affecting black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I need to figure out how to cover certain stories in a way that's delicate, but also, you know, just amplified. And then obviously we're dealing with a lot of police brutality and injustice toward black folks. So I love being able to amplify stories that, Maybe if I don't talk about them, they wouldn't be told. So I'm in a, a unique position where things are constantly and consistently changing, but it's exciting to be able to have an opportunity to do my part in a sense. That's awesome. I want to ask you a lot more about what it's like covering big issues and newsmakers and in the times of, of, of COVID. But tell us a little bit about where you were born and uh, where you were raised. Uh, where, where's Marquise from? Yeah, so Marquise is from North New Jersey, uh, specifically born in Newark. Uh, that's my my mom is from, uh, aka Brick City. But I grew up in Oakland, New Jersey, which literally is the polar opposite of Newark um, in in every sense of the word. Whereas Newark is more gritty and urban, and you know, just make it how you can. Oakland is you know 
pretty much as, as white as possible. You know, I remember out of, a, out of my high school, of a thousand people, there was like six black people. To this day, I'm still, I was just working out over the weekend with one of my best friends from, uh, from home. But I, I always went to church in Newark. So I, I feel like I had kind of the best of both worlds in, in a sense, being able to figure out how to operate in white spaces, figuring out how to navigate in one way, but also being able to, you know, have what, are the, what do you call it, street smarts and just being able to navigate real world all the time. So, yeah, so North Jersey is home. You know, I, but most recently I've lived in Harlem for the past six years, but Jersey kid, uh, my heart. Those early days and going to church and, you know, uh, figuring out how to navigate navigation, if you will. Mm-hmm. How do you think that impacted you identity wise or, or culturally? You know what? I feel like it just was what it was early on. I wasn't doing a whole lot of, wow, like I'm so different. You know, I can remember getting braids. I think it was fifth grade. And it's funny because I just told my mom this story and she like literally fell out. I remember I had twists. <laughs> so it's like where you twist up your hair just to let them grow a little bit. And I was called out of class one day and the nurse, the nurse wanted to come speak to me. So, I, I, you know, I was a talkative class clown, but I was got my work done. So I'm like, I don't think I did anything, but let's go figure this out. And when I was called down there, I said, oh, hey, like I was called out of class. Like, what is it? Literally, I was called because she wanted to touch my hair. It's like, oh, I heard you had twists. Like, let me feel it, right? I knew it was weird. I knew it was awkward. But, you know, fifth grade, I was just like, oh, okay. And then I went back to class. You know, and that's that incident or moment stuck with me, but I didn't know how to properly articulate it. So then going into high school, once again, I knew I was the only black kid. I excelled in sports, but also did well in the classroom. So there was a little microaggression. It's like, oh, you can only you can jump because you're black, you know. But I kind of just disregarded it for a while. It really wasn't until college, I feel like, where I realized really like, wow, like, yes, we're all people, but there are some extreme differences between all groups of people, but really different black and white people. Like, there's a lot of differences, you know, and unless we kind of both are able to come to the table and open about talking about those differences and being very active and kind of making things better, there's going to continue to be this division. You know, and I, I was I went to Syracuse University and Newhouse School, so one of the top communication schools. So as much as in my extracurricular life, I was able, I did a black fraternity, so I was able to be around mostly black folks, you know, in my free time. Once again, in the classroom, I'm back in Oakland. I'm back being one of the only few black people, you know, surrounded by mostly white. So once again, it wasn't anything new to me. The transition wasn't hard, but I, at many points, I'm constantly reminded at least the world in some strange way wants me to believe, you know, if you want to succeed, you have to be in these white spaces. And obviously I don't believe that to be true, but there's just so many instances that want you to believe that. So I would just say, it, and, and, and really it wasn't until I started working was when I really started to contextualize, you know, the difference between white and black, why it is history. I mean, I was an African-American studies minor. And to be honest, I read a bunch of books, wrote a couple of papers, and that was it. But it was really applying. You know, I, my first job was working with Reverend Al Sharpton at Politics Nation at MSNBC. And he had this segment on his show called, I think it was like, Rev Al's Mail. And my job was to go through that email list every day. And when I tell you 98% of the emails were just racist, calling him this word and that word, and Tawana Brawley, I had to Google what Tawana Brawley was. Mm. You know, then I read it and I was like, oh, 
this is kind of crazy. So every few months, there was something that would come up where I would be like, oh, wow. You know, whether it was Central Park Five, now he's exonerated five. But I started to understand the context as I got older, whereas I had these microaggressions young, couldn't really contextualize it. Now that I'm older, I'm able to say, whoa, that's racist. Mm. And this is why. And this is the point in history that I can actually point to to really tell you why this race, like Central Park, was once a black settlement. White people came and just took it over. You know, so there's so many instances. Like I live in Harlem right now and most people come around here and they're like, this is Harlem? You know, but that's another thing. But yeah, no. So, you know, obviously my, my upbringing definitely shaped me. Um, and it wasn't probably until college that I started to understand the real innate differences. And then after college where I was really able to be like, oh, wow, this, this is crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, it sounds like the lesson there is right. One education and two being aware of not only who you are, but uh, your surroundings as well. Yeah. It's always, I mean, education is always going to be something that separates people. Right. And there's so many ways to get education. You can read Mm -hmm. books, you could go to school, you can just listen. So the more aware and and knowledgeable you are on certain instances, right? I mean, the reason why people talk about the Holocaust so much is so that it doesn't happen again. So the more that we're aware of different things, the goal is that we can stop things from happening, you know, but being aware of your surroundings, it can change the way you move through the world. Yeah. I mean, people always talk about code switching, I personally don't ascribe to that because I I don't want to be in a space where I have to switch who I am. I think Mm -hmm. as you get older, you just, just, you should carry yourself in a more mature manner where maybe you just shouldn't talk or use certain words, you know, Right. but I want to be me. Right. So if I'm in my workplace and I have to code switch every day, maybe it's not the right place for me. If I'm in a workplace and they value who I am and the difference that I bring, that's the place where I want to be. Yeah. And I think some of that has to do with being comfortable with who you are too, right? Just going back to the experiences that you just talked about, you know, the one where, you know, the nurse touched your hair and then from high school, and then you didn't really start to realize what was going on is maybe started speaking up to you or in college, right? That's a maturity level thing as well too, right? And being more comfortable with who you are as a person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny because I can remember like, older people saying things and I'm like, ah, you're so old. But I will say social media wasn't a thing when I was in high school. Right. But now that it's so prevalent, I think a lot of young people are able to make that connection a lot sooner. Uh-huh. You know, like we're able to know that was wrong. Maybe in middle school, you're able to call things out and able to maybe point back to something in history. You're literally bombarded by it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So I, I kind of wonder sometimes what if Twitter was around and 2005, you know, obviously we can't go back, but right. in some ways it was like this, like blissful ignorance, you know, the, obviously the race, the racism was still there, but you just, it wasn't thrown in your face every day. You know, mm-hmm. like I was just back in my hometown this past weekend. And it's funny, me and my best friend who's also black, we were uh, working out and there was probably this group of like 10, couldn't have been no more than 16. They were all kind of small, but they were listening to like Pop Smoke, this rapper from Brooklyn. I'm like, this would not have been a thing 10 years ago, you know, when I was in high school. And I just, it was kind of funny to me because it's not even like a mainstream Drake or future. Like this is, this is kind of like some drill hip hop music. And I just, I thought it was just funny. 
but it just shows the times and social media things spread more. And, you know, they might've been listening to NSYNC 10 years ago and now they're listening to the same music I'm listening to. So in many ways, a lot of things are a bit melded together, but obviously there's so many other ways that, you know, we're so far apart. Right, right. What is it like to be a black reporter at a Trump rally? (laughs) Yeah, um, so my first one, it was in Rochester, Minnesota. And this was right when, right before, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, like when that that was the big deal, whether he was going to get appointed or not to the Supreme Court. So initially, I was definitely a bit apprehensive, right? I'm never the type to like turn down anything. I'm always like, yeah, what do you want me to do? Like, let me do it. Trump rally? Sounds crazy. Let me do it. But of course, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I believe in God. So I'm like, you know what, God? Either I'm going to make it out of this or my family's going to get some money. So let's let's just make it happen. You know, one thing I will say, which is crazy enough, I did have a, a white cameraman. So I did feel a little buffer, if anything, you know. Mm. I'm not sure if they would have thought like, oh, this is, you know, if it was a black cameraman, it, it could have been thinking we're trying to distort whatever. So long story short, to be honest, going there, all you see is a sea of red hats and I'm there to do a job, ask questions. You know, right. why, why are you here? What do you think? You know, what do you think about Kavanaugh? You know, some of the answers I got were pretty crazy. I remember one, it was two women who were just like, we've all been touched. Like, who cares? Like, it's a part of growing up, you know? So you're hearing that type of thing. But as far as did I ever feel in danger, I can't say that I did, you know? So sure. to be honest, if anything, it, it may, maybe that's a little scarier than actually, like, I, you know, so these people think totally different than a large part of the country or, you know, it's just two different people on two different spectrums, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not going to beat you up, but they're probably going to hate you and hate everything about you, but they won't say it to your face. So to me, it's like, hmm, it, it, I don't know. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be your lunch lady who right. has these hateful feelings and, you know, could care less about anyone who's, who's not white, you know? So in a weird way, it was cool. Like I didn't feel in danger, but at the same time I was like, wait, they could probably still not like me, but they, you know, I don't yeah. know. It was just an interesting, uh, experience. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you mentioned earlier uh, interviews with Charlemagne and, and Stacey Abrams. Anyone on your wish list that you want to get to? Well, I will say at the time, Cardi B was high up there because she was aligning herself with Bernie and I just feel like she'd be fun. John Legend was up there as well, just because I feel like him and Chrissy Teigen were pretty active on social media. I, I would say now, I mean, if anything, Barack Obama, just because mm. why not, you know? Right. <laughs> Someone who, you know, a black man, kind of cool, likes basketball. It's like, I feel like we have a bunch of stuff. He's just like a cool guy, right? right. You know? Right. Um, but yeah, my goal, like I kind of mentioned earlier, is just always trying to figure out, I mean, how can I make politics more relatable? You know, talking to, no offense to them, but someone in a suit and tie, you know, who... It's just all big words. It doesn't really relate. But if I'm able to talk to even Barack Obama, you know, or you mentioned Charlemagne, Cardi B, who's able to say, look, this is how I grew up. This is what it matters to me. This is what I need politicians to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. For me, it just like makes it more understandable. And I think it would make politics overall just better to grasp and it would have a lot more people uh, wanting to be, you know, knowledgeable and involved with it. How did you um, sort of move into your career path? You mentioned 
going to a great school and new house and then eventually landing at MSNBC and a number of other great companies. How did you get started down that path? Yeah, honestly, it was all internships. So honestly, shout outs to my mom. I was part of this internship program called the Emma Bowen Foundation. And it's still around. It's still active. I'm actually still pretty involved as an alumni. But when I was involved, the program, you apply to the program and you interview with the program. So basically the program's purpose was to put, I don't know, I don't like the, well, I know the word minority, I don't really love to talk about non-white people, but obviously it's the minority report. Um, (laughs) You know, so non-white people to get, help them to get jobs, right? In the field of media to help balance the playing field. That's the purpose of this whole entire program at the Emma Bowen Foundation. So you apply with the Emma Bowen Foundation. And once you kind of get past them, they set you up with an interview with basically the top networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, you know, depending on where you're located, whether it be New York, Philly, Florida, Texas, you know, it could be a local news station or, you know, the big networks. Being that I lived in New Jersey, commute to New York, I had an interview with NBC. And the great thing about the program is once you got that internship, you were guaranteed an internship through college. So I got it after my freshman year. And I knew once I got it, that I would have an internship through senior year. So every summer I switched departments. I was first with NBC Learn, which was like a educational website. Then I was with Dylan Radigan, which was a show on MSNBC. And then my last summer I was with The Grio, which is Black News website. So every summer, a different experience. But once again, I got familiar with NBC, what that was like. And then coming up on senior years, when I reached out to my HR contact, like, hey, I'm graduating. I'd love to work there. It just so happened it was her last day. She's like, oh, my gosh, thank God you emailed me. I'll forward you along to this other woman. And I was able to get that first job at MSNBC, wherever now Sharpton. So, you know, I think everyone knows. But internships are really everything. You know, that's where you get that experience. It's crazy that, like, at this point, entry-level roles still require experience. And they really allow you to separate yourself from those who don't have that experience. Gotcha. You mentioned Reverend Al Sharpton a a couple times. Was he uh, a mentor to you? And uh, were there other mentors that you could think of that uh, helped you out along the way? You know, uh, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying a mentor. Like, you know, my perspective, Reverend Al Sharpton, is literally from when I started working there until even to this day, whereas I know a lot other people have a different context, right? Mm-hmm. Through my research, you know, finding more about him, I mentioned Tawana Brawley and different things and seeing, you know, his evolution. I can understand why people have strong feelings, you know, for him. You know, so I, I respected him. I, his, I respected the heck out of his work ethic. I was there for almost three years. He never took off a day never called in sick. It didn't matter if it was 50 feet of snow outside. He was doing it remote from his, it didn't matter. Mm. So in many ways, I wouldn't necessarily call him a mentor, but a role model in some ways. You know, I think there's so many things that I could learn from him. But, you know, at the end of the day, he came in to do his job. You know, uh, I traveled a couple times with him to different places where he was doing something else at, where he did the show remote. But we weren't hanging out, eating. You know, he actually didn't eat much at all. You know, he slimmed up a bit. But I would say more so a role model, you know. And then I would say beyond that, anyone else? Yeah, I can't think of really anyone else as far as a role model. I I would like to say I take bits and pieces from different people. 
Gotcha. Um, Whereas I don't necessarily look at one person for, oh, you know, this one thing. I mean, I might look at Reverend Al Sharpton for his work ethic. Mm. I look at Lester Holt for just his professionalism. Mm. You know, I look at Killer Mike for just the way he's able to blend in the, you know, political and cultural space, you know? Yeah, you know, that's definitely been kind of one of the things I wish I had, like more of like a direct mentor. I feel like I've had mentor moments at many points in my life, but I haven't really connected with a whole lot of people in the way I would like to. And I also don't feel the need to force it. Yeah. Um, So I think I, I just take different moments and I feel like I'm also, I'm super into just looking and watching and studying people. So I like to look at people's mannerisms and the way they carry themselves. So I just, you know, take mental notes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now you spend a large portion of your time producing content that people watch. What do you read and watch to stay informed? Yeah. I mean, Twitter is everything, honestly. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't even say Facebook or Instagram. It's literally Twitter. You know, maybe I'll get a couple outliers with Facebook and Instagram where I'm like, wait, that happened? So-and-so died? But it's really Twitter, you know? And I think I think it's important to follow people who you agree with and some people you don't agree with. But Twitter, you know, and obviously every person's Twitter is curated to their likes and whatnot. But between basketball, entertainment, and news, Twitter is everything. Occasionally, if I'm flicking through the channels, I'll, I'll, I'll scroll past MSNBC or CNN. It's hard, but every once in a while, I'll look at Fox News maybe for like 30 seconds. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, I get a bunch of updates on my phones from different, you know, CNN, HuffPost or whatnot. But Twitter really is everything. You know, I can remember the past few stories that I've read, that I've written on. They're basically ideas that came from Twitter. Right after, you know, tragic passing, passing of George Floyd, I saw a tweet that said, Minneapolis police kill black people 13 times you know, as much as white people. I was like, oh, that's a story right there. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I see a crazy stat, I want to look into it more. I, I remember I saw a 15-year-old girl in, in Michigan was in jail because she didn't do her online coursework. Like, well, that's yeah. crazy. Right. Let, you know, let me look into that. That's a story. So it really derives a lot from that, you know. And then when I just think of something being big or whatnot, kind of Twitter is my first place where I search. Saw someone in one another meeting mentioned, you know, gun sales are on the rise across the board, record numbers. But the biggest number, uh, the group with the the highest sales from the first six months of this year versus last year are Black Americans. So I'm like, hmm. So I went and searched, just bought a gun, Black, and that's where I was able to find sources for my article. Found a, a woman in Texas who just bought a gun in Houston. Then I looked in her thread and she bought it from a Black-owned gun store. Able to find that guy from Twitter. So Twitter is really, really great in being able to, you know, find stories and find people. Obviously, it's important to fact check different things because, you know, anyone could tweet anything. But, you know, through just you through knowledge, there are some people who you just, all right, you feel as though you're able to trust. Kind of the same reason why local newscasters don't change over years is because, you know, communities just come to trust what they say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Marquis, you're recording in the studio sometimes. You're on the road. You've got a lot going on. How do you manage sort of that work-life balance? Is there such a thing? How, how does that work out for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, not to be like a cheerleader for my company, my job, but I think one of the things that I do enjoy about it, you know, I started working at Yahoo specifically, and I still work there, but Verizon then acquired Yahoo in addition to AOL. But I had that experience with MSNBC where it's cable news. I was on the 6 p.m. show. So you get in at 9 or 10 o'clock, you're, you know, working up until 5, 5.30, going to the studio. You know, you're on that show six to seven. You have a debrief for 15 minutes after. So your day is pretty long. Whereas now, for the most part, it's like a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. We're coming in, we're having our morning pitch meeting at 10. Folks are doing their stories. You get as much done as you can till five. And then you're done for the day, which is really nice because, you know, whereas that cable news every single day, you know, at six o'clock, you have a show. You know, whereas in this more tech space and kind of, you know, you have a bit more wiggle room where it's like, okay, if I don't get a story out today, I can get it out tomorrow. You know, things are a little bit different when I'm traveling on the road. So, you know, I remember when I was in the office, I was sending out, it wasn't every day, but like I would pick a day a week and send out 10 plus emails to people. And I'm like, one of these has to hit. So on a Tuesday, I might send out an email for, Valley Jarrett. And if she says, hey, yeah, I can meet tomorrow in Idaho. I'm on a flight, you know, that night or in the morning, you know, which which is kind of cool. I think especially for where I'm at in my life, like I'm more than willing to just get up and go. Right. And I'm willing to do that now because I know at a certain time when I do have more responsibility as a family, a wife, it's like, OK, slow down. Um, <laughs> so it really ebbs and flows. And I think that's what keeps it fun. I think I've been, like I mentioned, cable news where there's some advantages, but you know what to expect. You're going to come in every day. You're going to, you know, write one story. Someone else is going to read it and you go home. You know, it's kind of monotonous. And I just know that's not what I want for the rest of my life. So if I'm able to kind of be doing different things every every few days, I, it really keeps the excitement and what I do. And I really enjoy that. But yeah, I was just going to say, you mentioned, you know, sort of having role models and folks that, you know, you know, you sort of emulate certain bits and pieces and take what you need and leave behind what you don't and not really having sort of mentors, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm curious about inspiration. Where do you draw inspiration from? Number one is my mom. I feel like, you know, someone who doesn't really know, she kind of knows what I, she knows what I do for sure, but she doesn't really know the ins and out. I just know that if I'm able to do something cool, she'll be happy. So just knowing that if I can do something worthy of her smiling or worthy of her sharing on her Facebook to her friends, it's like job well done. And then I would say I'm I'm a competitive person by nature. So, you know, knowing that I'm going to do something that someone else can, you know, praise or just be mad, like, darn, I wish I did that kind of keeps me going. You know, in general, I want to be the best at whatever I do. You know, at one point it was basketball. Thought I was going to go to the NBA like every other, you know, young black kid at some point, I'm sure. Obviously, I'm not there. So why not be the best journalist, the best, you know, uh, on camera, you know, news journalist as possible? So, yeah, I would just say my mom and that competitive drive really keep me going. And I think just also just surrounding myself with people who are going to be honest with me. And that's one thing I love. You know, I as cool as I think I am, I know I'm a tenth of where. I'll eventually be, but I, one thing I do enjoy and I think is super necessary is, is firm and, and honest critique and criticism. You know, I think the only way you can get better is when people are real and are honest with you. I remember I asked someone to look at something I did there and I was like, Oh, how is this? Oh, that's pretty good. 
And they said, oh, it's a 6.5. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I, had to swallow, I had to swallow that for a little bit. But in the back of my head, I just keep, I keep thinking I'm a 6.5 and I'm trying to get better. So little things like that definitely keep me motivated. I feel like I'm like Michael Jordan in uh, Say the Last Dance where he just remembers that one thing that happened. But <laughs> 6.5 is, is, is often in my mind. So I just try to outdo myself and be better than 6.5. And as long as I keep doing that, I feel like I'm on the, a good path. Nice. What advice would you give that, that kid at Syracuse University right now that's looking to come out of school and get into journalism? Yeah, I mean, one thing I often say is whatever you want to do, there's no reason why you can't be doing it right now. You know, so if you want to be telling stories or you want to be doing something on camera or writing, you know, there's so many opportunities to create a free blog. Start that. You know, we have YouTube right now, whether it's your cell phone or you buy an inexpensive camera, flip it around and go start telling stories. Whether it's the story of your family, you know, asking people or you actually going out to the community and doing your own mock stories, the sooner you're able to start, the better. And another thing, a lot of times, you know, young people reach out to me on Instagram or whatnot and they say, hey, I want to do something of like what you do. It's just like, great, you know, let's, let's make it happen. You know, and then I say, okay, what are you doing right now? And they're like, oh, well, uh, and I'm just like, see, that's that's why I need to just start something now. So if you're able to say, oh, I have a blog that I've been working on the past six months and I've been doing 10, you know, a story every other week and I've written an article with it. That's going to show someone, a potential employer, like, oh, wow, this person's serious. Right. You know, it's funny. My mom is always giving out my number to one of her friends or a friend of a friend to talk to their son or daughter like, oh, this person's into journalism. And I recently, maybe a month or two ago, told her, don't give my number to the parent to call. Give it to the kid and tell the kid to call me or tell the kid before they call me, you know, make sure they're doing something. And literally, once again, this past weekend, she just told me, wow, I noticed how no one follows up, you know, because it it goes from how much the kid actually wants it or, you know, is it actually the adult or the parent wants it and one thing I noticed is that young people often don't have follow-up. I was always the kid. I followed up. If I got a card, I'm writing your name or whatever. I'm emailing you right after. So it's just really all about following up, starting what you can now. And lastly, just knowing that you're doing something each day to get to whatever your ultimate goal is. Even if it's brainstorming, you're doing something to get to where you want to go, you know, because it's literally a work in progress every single day you're building just keep taking a step forward no matter how small or big just keep moving forward yeah absolutely give us the top three apps on your phone that you use regularly you can't name email or calendar look at it or do i just go off no no go ahead and look at it i I love (laughs) okay i love asking this question of every guest is it's okay uh, fascinating to see uh what people use on a daily basis so honestly, I have Twitter, I have Instagram, and I have GroupMe right now. But other than that, I mean, that sounds kind of boring, I know. Uh, <laughs> it, I'm it, looking, it, I, mean, is. I mean, that's what you use to get your job done, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't have like a bunch of games or anything. Instagram is like my favorite probably social media app, even though I don't really use it for news so much. I'm constantly looking at people's stories and just, I don't know, it's my little getaway. Wow, yeah, my phone is kind of boring. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are the main ones. I mean, I'm I'm trying trying dearly to get like deep into stocks. Yeah, I have like quite a bit of money, 
invested. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just like, you know what? I Thankfully, like a year ago, I put some money into Tesla and I'm like, okay, that's working out. Also Microsoft stock today. So yeah, that's another app that like, I'm, I'm just like, you know what? If I just keep buying it and I'm in it for the long call, tech, I'm like, eh, it'll work out. Well, thanks for joining us uh, today. How can our listeners follow you? Sounds like there's a couple of places you just mentioned. What are some yeah, good yeah. Ways, so uh, for, for our, our listeners and, and viewers to, to follow you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So on Instagram and Twitter, the same. It's T-H-E Marquise, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-F. So the Marquise F on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. And then if you search Yahoo, Marquise Francis, I should pop up. Excellent. Well, thanks everyone for listening again. And uh, you can find us where you find all of your audio. Just search Minority Report Podcast. Thanks.